I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, as Israeli forces focus their fight on southern Gaza, a reminder of what started the war. And if you just look at the floor, you see broken glass everywhere. And you can smell, you can smell the human uh, flesh. It's a very distinctive smell. Ollie London guides us through the horrors of the October 7th attack live from Israel. Down to business. We know the Justice Department made a concerted effort to prevent investigators from asking questions about Joe Biden. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill inch closer to a formal impeachment inquiry of President Joe Biden. Meanwhile, the House confronts anti-Semitism on college campuses. We have a report and reaction and confession on wheels. This priest gives a new meaning to healing of the sick. We'll explain. These stories add more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us. Our top story tonight as Israel intensifies its offensive against Hamas, a dire warning from a World Health Organization representative in southern Gaza. The situation is, is getting worse by the, by the hour. I mean, like there's intensified bombing uh, going on all around, including here in the southern areas, Khan Yunus uh, um, and even in Rafah. Ambulances and the injured arrived nonstop outside of Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus. The city is the latest target of Israel's bombardment. As Israel's war with Hamas spreads south, civilians are being left with nowhere to go. Many had sought shelter here after evacuating the north. Well, just north of Khan Yunus, Gaza health officials reported many people were killed during an Israeli strike. As you can see, men here are digging through the rubble of a multi-story building trying to find survivors. The director at a nearby hospital said the facility had more than 90 bodies and dozens of casualties from the bombing. Well, the State Department says more than 1,000 U.S. citizens and their family members have escaped the fighting in Gaza, but there are still hundreds of Americans who remain and that's not including the hostages. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Tracy, tonight the Biden administration says it's doing all it can to free the American hostages held by Hamas. And today, as President Joe Biden left the White House to do some campaign fundraising, I tried asking him about it. So if the hostages, the hostages, the American hostages, are they... Do you believe they're alive? Headed to the Boston area for some campaign fundraising, President Joe Biden did not take questions upon leaving the White House this morning, walking towards Marine One. Good afternoon. But over at the U.S. State Department, spokesman Matthew Miller updates reporters on the Israel-Hamas war, and more specifically, the fate of the hostages. If there's no ceasefire, can they still be rescued? Um, we are working every day to try and return hostages. Whether there is a pause or not, we will continue to work to try and secure the release of all those American citizens. The White House National Security Advisor recently met with the families of hostages. We continue to do everything in our power under the president's leadership and guidance with his direct involvement and participation to try to bring all of these Americans home as well as all of the hostages, and we will not rest until we have succeeded in doing so. Jake Sullivan says there cannot be another terror attack like October 7th, which he warns Hamas wants to repeat again and again. Israel has already started dismantling Hamas's extensive military infrastructure, including labyrinths of tunnels and bunkers, as well as rocket launchers and sniper nests. For now, the nearly two-month-long war has no end in sight. 
the United States, Qatar, and Egypt, which mediated the earlier ceasefire that came to an abrupt end last week, say they're working on a longer truce. We are four or five days into this campaign in the South. It's just started again after the pause. It's too early to make, I think, overall assessments about how it's going. But certainly I know for civilians on the, on the ground, conditions are incredibly difficult. The U.S. State Department also took action today against people responsible for violence in the West Bank. They will face U.S. visa restrictions, travel bans. The State Department says the policy designed to promote peace, security, and stability in the West Bank. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. We're going now to Ali London, who is in Jerusalem as part of a diplomatic delegation visiting some of the kibbutz communities where the terror group Hamas committed atrocities on October 7th. Ali, great to be with you. Uh, you and I have talked many times before, but not about this. Uh, tell us why you decided to go to Israel and see firsthand what actually took place there. Well, for me, I was absolutely horrified, like many uh, Christians, uh, what happened on October 7th when I saw videos of you know, women being paraded through the streets after being killed and, you know, images of children being killed and really horrific scenes. And I was so appalled by that. But what shocked me more, Tracy, was the response by so many across the world in university campuses from Columbia University to even Harvard, uh, people that were either denying the events took place or celebrating it. And I thought that is a very disrespectful narrative for these innocent people, 1,200 people uh, so brutally lost their lives that day. So I felt it was very, very important for me to actually go on the ground to visit uh, Kibbutz uh, Far Azza today, where over 60 people lost their lives and actually show the world the truth of what happened. Yeah, and I want to jump off of that, Ali. I want to talk a little bit more about that. Um, so many of those people were brutally killed by Hamas militants, and, and many others were taken hostage as well. We have a quick clip of what you saw there, and we're going to talk about that on the other side. You can smell the human flesh. You can smell the human flesh where clearly the family have been burned alive in this room. Ali, talk to us more about that experience. Uh, you were inside a family's panic room at the home. What was that like for you? It was absolutely horrifying. I mean, it's been 60 days since this horrific massacre took place and you could still smell the human flesh. Um, the tactic used by Hamas in this specific kibbutz, they actually burned the family homes down to try and drive them out of their safe rooms. In other instances, they, they pulled the doors from the outside because uh, they didn't actually have locks on the doors because they were mainly used for rocket strikes as a safe room. Um, so the horrific things, burning the houses down, um, we also hear horrific stories of rape. Um, the bodies, uh, some of the bodies had uh, pelvic bones broken, uh, clear signs of violent rape. Um, some of them had their breasts cut off um, and shot in the head after being raped. And there was a story of one woman um, who had been raped by 10 different men. They shot her breast, uh, grabbed it and threw it around the room laughing before they shot her in the head. So absolute horror scene. Yeah, it's it's hard to hear that. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit more, um, unfortunately, about the women that were raped there at the kibbutz. They were not the only ones uh, who suffered at the hands of Hamas, this horrific crime uh, that the group uses as a weapon of war. On Monday, a special session was held at the United Nations to raise awareness about the sexual violence committed against women during the attacks. Many speaking at the meeting, including the Israeli ambassador to the U.N., and he had some really strong words for the U.N. regarding its slow response to the accounts of Hamas's 
sexual crimes against Israeli women. Ali, I want to get your thoughts on that. It took the United Nations 54 days before they even commented to condemn the sexual violence against women. Uh, of the uh, 1,200 massacre victims, 300 were women, and there were dozens and dozens that were raped, including teenage girls. And, you know, the fact that the United Nations is supposed to be speaking up about humanitarian issues, speaking up for women, and they were silent on this, as was the UN Secretary General for 56 days before he issued a, a tweet, is very very telling and it just shows that not, they're not being impartial so you know, at least they had a, a special session yesterday and uh, people spoke up about the horrific crimes uh, committed against women and obviously I heard the stories firsthand visiting some of these homes of these women today and it was worse than any nightmare imaginable. It's so hard to hear but really important to talk about people need to know these things. Ali thank you so much for your time and speaking with us always good to see you God bless you. Thank you God bless you. Senator Tommy Tuberville announced today that he is ending his months-long blockade on hundreds of military promotions. It was pretty much a draw. I mean, they didn't get what they wanted, we didn't get what we wanted. And, you know, just, when they when they change the rules, it's hard to it's hard to win. And so they changed the NDA rules. We didn't get to fight for it to leave it in the Senate. And so just unfortunate the American people didn't get a voice. Well, the Alabama senator told colleagues in a closed-door meeting that he is jumping on board with an idea presented by Senators Dan Sullivan and Joni Ernst that would release all of his holds on military officers at the three-star level and below. Tuberville held up more than 400 military promotions over the Defense Department's using taxpayer dollars to pay for service members' abortion travel expenses. A hold will remain for the roughly 10 nominations for four-star generals and officers. Congressman James Comer, the House Oversight Committee chair, says that he is confident the U.S. House has enough votes to move forward with a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. It would give the panel broader powers. EWTN News Nightly Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales has the latest on the inquiry vote, which could come as early as next week. Good evening, Tracy. House Republicans are moving closer to formally start an impeachment inquiry of President Joe Biden. This week, Congressman James Comer released new evidence of alleged regular monthly payments from one of Hunter Biden's business entities to his father, Joe Biden. This week, we revealed how Hunter Biden's corporate entity, Owasco PC, made direct monthly payments to Joe Biden. Owasco PC is under investigation by the Justice Department for tax evasion and other serious crimes. The Kentucky Republican released subpoenaed bank records that allegedly show direct monthly payments of $1,380 and also released copies of several checks from the Biden family to the president totaling $240,000. Chinese and other foreign entities funneled millions of dollars into Hunter's Owasco PC. And some of this money landed in Joe Biden's bank account. These direct monthly payments to Joe Biden are part of a pattern revealing Joe Biden knew about, participated in, and benefited from his family's shady business schemes. Some GOP lawmakers have privately expressed reservations about moving ahead with impeachment. Democrats still claim there is no smoking gun. There's not a scintilla of evidence that Republicans have produced to show that President Joe Biden has engaged in wrongdoing, an impeachable offense, or in any way has broken the law. 
Congressman Comer tells me what more do Democrats want. He has IRS testimony, bank records, and an interview with Hunter Biden's associate, Devin Archer, showing that the Biden family and business associates received more than $20 million from entities in China, Ukraine, Russia, and more. That testimony, he adds, also shows the president participated in group calls with Hunter Biden and his business partners and that the Justice Department pressured IRS investigators to back off from interviewing the president for their investigation of Hunter Biden's alleged tax crimes. Speaker Johnson says the U.S. House must follow its constitutional duties. This vote is not a vote to impeach President Biden. This is a vote to continue the inquiry of impeachment, and that's a necessary constitutional step, and I believe we'll get every vote that we can. The White House continues to push back against Republicans' claims, saying that there is no evidence Hunter Biden is expected to meet with the Oversight Committee this month. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including cause for concern. Three university presidents talk to lawmakers about anti-Semitism on college campuses. Universities testified on Capitol Hill today. The subject, the right to free speech while keeping students safe from anti-Semitism. Lawmakers pressed the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania on their responses to a number of protests, sometimes violent, that erupted after the October 7th terror attacks by Hamas on Israel. During these difficult days, I have felt the bonds of our community strain. In response, I have sought to confront hate while preserving free expression. This is difficult work, and I know that I have not always gotten it right. Yet as president of MIT, in addition to my duties to keep the campus safe and to maintain the functioning of this national asset, I must at the same time ensure that we protect speech and viewpoint diversity for everyone. And here to comment on the hearings is Professor William Jacobson of Cornell University. Professor, great to be with you today. Um, talk to us about what you thought about the hearings and the main takeaways. Well, I actually thought the three presidents were, frankly, fairly pathetic. They seem to be either unaware of what's happening at their campuses or unwilling to deal with it. Repeatedly throughout their testimony, when they were questioned by uh, various representatives, they would say, oh, we welcome all viewpoints. We welcome, we embrace everybody. We want to have this culture of acceptance on campus. But we all know that that's not true. I'm on a campus. It's not true. I followed campuses for over 15 years almost daily and, and reported on them. So I really felt there was a, a disconnect there. Yeah. And, and, you know, it really is shocking some of the things that we've seen playing out on college campuses, also on your campus as well at Cornell. Um, that being said, do you think it's been enabled by university policy for years? And I know uh, you have said it's kind of predictable. Yeah, well, I've been predicting this for 15 years. Uh, finally, people are paying attention, not because of me, but because of events. I've been saying this racialization of everything, the balkanization of campuses under critical race theory, um, intersectionality, diversity, equity, inclusion, there's a lot of different names for it, but it, it forces students to view themselves through racial, ethnic, 
and other identity lenses, rather than viewing themselves as individuals, each of whom is worthy in their own right to equal treatment under the law, they're viewed as proxies for groups. One of the when things- When you do that, you set st students against each other. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, was talked about this uh, at the hearing today, this uh, the diversity of thought and talent on campus. What do you think can be done about that to kind of correct things? Um, should we hire more conservative faculty members? Well, I think the situation is so far gone with regard to diversity of viewpoint. There's got to be outside pressure. Uh, the faculties are close to 100 percent at the elite institutions, at least, like the three that were in Congress today. They're almost 100 percent not just not conservative, they're hostile to conservatives. They're hostile to half the country's voters. They are in, feel insulated from any sort of public pressure. And I think that it's unhealthy and it uh, provides you know, a monoculture on campuses that cannot reform itself. Something's gonna have to be done with regard to public universities that can easily be done through budgets. Florida, I think, is on the right track eliminating and defunding the DEI budgets, but even the federal government, maybe not under this administration, but another one should put financial pressure because they cannot reform internally. We have about 20 seconds left or so, Professor, but quickly, can you give us an overview uh, of what the situation is like right now on your campus? Well, I think things have calmed down considering how horrible they were a month ago. Uh, you know, death threats against students, a student arrested by the FBI. Right now, the anti-Israel students are pretty much run amok. They've taken over the president's office. They're trying to pressure the administration. So it's not a healthy situation, but it's one that the administration appears unable to deal with. All right. Professor Jacobson, thank you for weighing in and for your time and insights. We appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, gift from Assisi, how one diocese in Italy is taking a hands-on approach helping the poor. Plus, wheeling and kneeling, why a religious order in Louisiana decided to buy an ambulance. of Assisi in Italy has an initiative of financial awards for projects that benefit the needy. EWTN Vatican journalist Benjamin Crockett has more. Carlo Acutis's charity was very local and hidden. It was amongst the poor of the streets, the beggars, but he too dreamt of a better tomorrow for those last ones of our society. I think that's where the saints make a difference. They don't only think of today, but they think of a better tomorrow. One of the core messages of the pontificate of Pope Francis is human fraternity. In response to this, the Diocese of Assisi instituted the international award Francis of Assisi and Carlo Acutis for an economy of fraternity. And today, the challenge was issued. Organized by the Diocese of Assisi, with the Sanctuary of the Renunciation, the initiative aims to inspire people with scarce economic possibilities, especially the young people under the age of 35, to come together and present a project to benefit and meet the needs of the most disadvantaged and neediest in their midst. Profit is to look after oneself only. Obviously, we need profits in the world, 
but the point is, what do we do with those profits? And here we have an award that gives people the opportunity to create a new mentality. This is a mentality where we'd certainly help a group of people, often taken from the streets, handicapped, suffering from diseases. The last winner of the award of 50,000 euros was given to a project in Chad, one of the poorest nations in the world, to support the Bethlehem House of the Bread project. Twelve poor and needy young people are now working together, accompanied by the local Franciscan Angeline sisters, to build and develop a bread-making laboratory. The project started because we collect, let's say, the dream of these kids who go to school. But the preparation is not enough. Even though they go to the school and even have a diploma, they would not have the possibility of a future. We saw that in that place, bread could be a resource, bread production. But the idea came mainly from them. Once again, from Assisi, the message of St. Francis and Blessed Carlo Acutis gives concreteness in line with the initiative of the Holy Father, who through the economy of Francis has invited young economists, changemakers and entrepreneurs to found again the economy by giving it a soul. In Rome, Benjamin Crockett, EWTN News Nightly. Well, finally tonight, the Advent season is underway, and along with decorating the house and the Christmas tree, there is also time for a little interior cleaning by going to confession. And one religious order in Louisiana is offering the faithful a beacon of hope. The community of Christ crucified has turned an old ambulance into a mobile confessional. The brothers take it to the shopping mall, football games, well, anywhere else. The Holy Spirit directs them as well. And we turn now to a member of that community, Father Michael Champagne from the Diocese of Lafayette, Louisiana. Father Michael, great to have you on. Uh, this is so wonderful. What gave you the idea of turning an ambulance into a mobile confessional? Well, I was uh, a hospital chaplain. My first assignment when I got back, ordained a priest. And we used to have the, uh, the ambulances come into the ER, and I would be called out to take care of the spiritual needs. And I had the idea, I said, boy, we sure, we had these critical care units. that so we need a spiritual care unit to go out on Saturdays and engage people on the street and uh, just show where they're at. And then if uh, they need, we'd have an opportunity to hear confessions. And it wasn't until when Pope Francis called the Year of Mercy and spoke about highlighting the sacrament of confession that I went on eBay and, uh, and looked for one in a choir room. Oh, this is wonderful. Mm -hmm. What's been the reaction? It's been overwhelmingly positive. Now, we have a very Catholic, at least under the surface, culture here in southwest Louisiana. But even among Protestants and uh, non-believers, they've been very uh, supportive and, and very um, uh, intrigued and, and I think inspired by the endeavor because it's been very successful. The church has been too uh, sedentary. It's been too much within the walls of people coming to us. And, of course, the gospel says... We have to leave the 99 that don't need it and go after the one stray sheep. And so this is really a, a new evangelization uh, that was already called for by St. John Paul the Great. Yeah, I'm curious, how often do you take it on the road? And where exactly, you know, do you go? Have you put a lot of ro uh, miles on it so far? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, we've had, we have one that's down. We have three units, a trailer and two uh, ambulances. 
and one of our units is a transmission valve because it's got 330,000 miles. We didn't put all of that, but we put a good bit of that on it. Um, we we uh, actually were going out three times a week during the year of mercy, and then uh, we uh, about once a week now, so about 70, 80 uh, stops uh, a year. Uh, so uh, every week, and we, uh, for example, this week we have uh, a stop at uh, at a parish endeavor. It's going to be outdoors, I think, on Friday. Uh, we have our St. Lucy uh, celebration, which is an outdoor festival of lights and uh, uh in uh, the square of st martinville we'll have it out that for sunday uh we have uh a health club that uh, is a catholic owner and he allows us to park there we have that scheduled for next week uh from 11 to 1. so we uh we go to ball games we go to uh, parking lots shopping centers uh bowling alleys uh we we, we park wherever people gather and we have permission to park. We show up and uh, people come. We've heard over, well, we used to click them when they came into the unit. So we had over 12,000 about two years ago when we stopped clicking. So uh, uh, confessions have still been clicking. So we probably have maybe 14, 15,000 confessions on the road. You sound like you're trailblazers in this. Are, are there any other parishes that are doing the same thing? Well, uh, in our diocese, uh, we, we do get other priests to help us, especially when we have big events. I have two priests in our community, myself and another, and we, we uh, work those confessionals. But uh, the, yeah, there's other dioceses, I uh, understand, is a place in uh, Detroit that has one. Uh, there's a Beaumont diocese uh, near us that uh, is uh, acquiring one. Uh, but I've heard of another an endeavors, you know, it's kind of spawned by this endeavor uh, to hear confessions uh, uh, actually, you know, outside the church particularly for those who maybe uh, have fallen away and have been a while. And they see the opportunity to get on their turf. I have the sisters or the brothers with me engaging them. They feel relaxed. They come in and make beautiful confessions. Yeah, this is beautiful. And thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for being on. We appreciate it, Father Champagne. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.